Really, really good to be here tonight with, uh, with everybody. A fantastic opportunity to uh, keep going tonight in Exodus and uh, journeying through the book we've been going to for, uh, through for many months now. But I want to begin tonight by telling you a story. Uh, about two and a half years ago, my wife is pregnant. Matter of fact, at the, this particular story, she's a few days over pregnant. Uh, should have been due a few days before this. And on uh, this particular night, I'm in a class at Covenant Seminary, and I get the text from her, the text from her. And it's, it says something like, you better come home right now, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to slowly, I don't know if you ever try to slowly creep your way out of a class to make it look like you're not actually leaving, but, you know, I already tried to like sit in the back row and all that stuff and, you know, all that inconspicuous stuff didn't work. So I wrap all my stuff up, get on home. Uh, get back, we do all the countdowns, the contractions and all that stuff, where's everything at? Um, I think it actually took some prodding from her dad to actually get us to go because we were so afraid. Both her and I were so afraid for the months leading up to, uh, to, our, to our first son being born because we had no idea what we're doing. I think even in the last few minutes, we were almost kind of wondering, like, do we have to go through with it? I mean, and I'm even saying that as a guy who, you know, I had the easy part in all of that. And so... So we go there, we get to the hospital, check in, going through the whole procedures and all that stuff. Well, at some point in time, hours down the road, uh, complications rise up. And then all of a sudden, the anxieties that, that we both shared, you know, are we going to be good parents? We, do we have any idea what we're doing? Uh, no, of course not. So this is why we're all freaked out. We've had no kids before. Are we going to be good? You know, just what's going to happen? Uh, then all these things happen, and all of a sudden, it gets more uh, crazy, you know, because all of a sudden we're nervous about some of the procedures they have to do. It looks like they, they, they're saying that she's probably going to have to go in and get a C-section soon. And just we're, they're feeling all that out. Well, eventually the doctor comes in and, and takes us down. And he says, hey, we've we got to go do this right now. Uh, we don't have any idea what's happening in there. And there were some complications. We didn't know if Reed was having, um, you know, if he was getting air and oxygen and stuff. So we get in there. And now I'm sitting in the operating room, and I'm holding Sarah's hand. She's got the, you know, the, the curtain up, so you, I'm only, like, sitting with her top half, and we're hanging out, uh, me, me and, you know, from her from, like, the belly up. I guess above the belly, technically, because that was on the other side. But we're, we're holding hands, and both her and I, we could feel it in each other, this, this huge amount of nervousness going on. I mean, what is going to happen here? And then I remember, like, drowning in that, not being totally sure of what was happening, and then all of a sudden I heard it. And for the very first moments, I heard the cry of our firstborn son. And in that moment, I turned and looked at her, and both her and I just started crying at the same time, and all, it just, like in a moment, a whole lifetime worth of anxiety over this one thing gets washed away. And we have this understanding that, you know, I don't know, everything's gonna be fine. And actually, then we see him, and then this, this whole transcendence goes to a different level because all of a sudden there's me, there's my wife, and our newborn son. And it's like we transcended and rose up above everything else and everything, everything else that was in the room just completely faded away. Like past, present, future worries, nervousness, all that stuff, out of the room. And in that moment, the, and I remember it so vividly, I just kept saying over and over and over again, God is good, God is good, God is good. Thank you, God, so much for this. You're so good. You gave us more than what we could have asked or hoped for. 
And I think if they didn't know it before we went in, I think the doctors and nurses knew uh, what our religious preferences is, uh, were after that because we were definitely like praising the Lord vocally like left and right. So um, matter of fact, Andrew, if you can put this picture up, this is what that moment was like. Uh, you probably can't sense it because Reed doesn't look like he's happy. He's like wrapped like a little manger baby. She looks happy, but she's also like, she just had surgery. So, I mean, she's looking crazy. You, you can tell I'm happy because my eyes are just squintier because that's, I guess that's how I show happiness or something. But I'm sitting here with this like huge bundle of joy and just, here's what I've come to figure out. And I'm, I'm very blessed that this moment was actually caught on camera, uh, amazing opportunity, because I think this moment, as good as I remember it, was the closest thing that I've ever experienced to true worship. In this moment, when God graciously provided something for us, and then I'm, I'm sitting there in myself just, just ecstatic, completely praising the Lord for what he has done. I didn't have to think about, do I need to raise my hands or not? Do I, should I do this? Who's looking at me? All that stuff. In that moment, I had no care about what was happening on around me. I was simply able just to praise God completely. I've never had a moment like that since. And I will probably go back and look at this picture often just to like get back in the zone of that moment. But I tell this whole story to set this up tonight. This passage right after the Ten Commandments is all about worship. Uh, it's going to say some stuff about worship. It's going to say some really interesting things that the Lord commands his people to do. There's nakedness and nudity involved. Many slides to follow here on the presentation. But, uh, but there's a whole lot, I think, that's being said about what the Lord desires in worship and what he desires from us, uh, the people who he gives grace uh, to worship him. So if you can't turn your Bibles to Exodus 20. Uh, Exodus 20, we've for uh, a while now, we've been um, journeying through the book of Exodus many months, and we just got done last week. Um, Mark did a fantastic job finishing out the Ten Commandments, and after the Ten Commandments were done, they were finished uh, being given uh, to the people. Then the people say to Moses, don't let God speak to us lest we die. You speak to us. Um, and in that moment, we all definitely discern that this is definitely a moment of faithfulness or faithlessness because they're really exchanging the voice of the Lord for the voice of a man. And on the heels of that, God uh, doesn't skip a beat. He almost doesn't even address their faithlessness, and he goes right for giving them a gracious uh, law here. So in Exodus 20, we're going to go through verses 22 through 26, and it says this. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So the classic ending of nakedness and uh, goodness there. We're going to dive right into this. A uh, lot of work to do tonight. So uh, verse 22, Exodus 20, it says this. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So a few things going on here. Right away, the Lord uh, graciously provides his voice through Moses. So from here on out, for the rest of this giving of the covenant, Moses is definitely the mouthpiece onto the people. Uh, and it says here that um, God says, you have seen for yourselves that I talked with you from heaven. 
Uh, he's, he's kind of like calling them back to the table. You've seen what I just did from you. I just gave you this gracious covenant. I just gave you my law. I spoke with you from heaven. It says a whole lot of things right away about the presence of the Lord, uh, where he is, uh, what he's not bound by. If this is true right away, then it means that the Lord is not bound to any one particular place. That he can't be like put in a box like some other idol or carved image. That, that he literally is speaking to his people from the heavens. That, that he can't be contained in anything. That he encompasses everything. He's speaking to them from uh, heaven. And then in verse 23, he says this. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. This is a throwback right away to where he began in the Ten Commandments when he said, you shall not have any other gods before me and, and also after that, that you shall not make any carved images and so don't make any idols. So he follows that up to really give some, uh, some clarification on here just in case you didn't know what I was talking about. I'm going to tell you, don't make for me gods um, uh, of silver and gods of gold to be with me. Uh, really encouraging, by the way, for people who don't have gold and silver, Okay. Like, good, thank you. I didn't have that anyway, so I'm glad you got that off the table. That's good, God. That's awesome. But think back to when they were in Egypt and when the Lord sent them out. He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and on the way out, by the power of his right hand, somehow he, he provided for them by having them plunder the Egyptians. And they, they basically asked them for gold and silver, and in a crazy way, the Egyptians gave it to them. Okay, so they leave Egypt with all this gold and silver, and I think in a sense, the Lord is saying right away here in verse 23, do not waste your money on making useless things that do nothing. Don't waste your money on false gods. They're not going to do anything. They're only going to consume what you are feeding into them. Don't waste what I have provided for you. And it brings up a couple points, I think, um, just to go back to this idolatry piece just for a moment, that, um, that worshiping a false god is less demanding than worshiping the true god. Worshiping something that's made of gold, worshiping something that that simply just demands your money, worshiping something that, that just takes a piece of you is far, far less difficult than worshiping the one true God, who, by the way, is the only God that's ever existed in the history of mankind that demands that his people give him their lives while they're still alive. Right? So, I mean, he's not asking for dead sacrifices, Romans 12. He's asking for living sacrifices. So the worship is higher, but the cost is extremely higher. Um, but this also brings up another truth, that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. So you have to imagine, if I'm worshiping a god of silver or a god of gold, uh, I am uh, storehousing, I'm like stockpiling all my gold and silver, and I'm trying to feed that to these idols to appease them, because that's what they're about, so they want more of what they're about. So I'm trying to feed that to them, but then what it does is it turns me into somebody who's just trying to get as much gold and silver as I can. You become what you worship. I think this brings us back to a point where we have to ask this of ourselves as a church, uh, ask this of ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, is what are we worshiping based on what we look like? Now, there's going to be times when we're going to be pressing into the Lord and we're going to be exuding grace and forgiveness and peace and patience and love and gentleness and kindness and all these things, everything that Jesus embodied. But there's other times, plenty of times, when we exhibit things far differently than that. And one of the questions that I think we can ask that all of us uh, will have to ask at times in our lives are, if I'm sensing something completely different that, that has nothing to do with the Lord in my character, am I worshiping something that's making me that way? So right here in the beginning, the question comes to you, what are you becoming? 
And I think the question comes back to the Israelites, um, how can we hold off on doing this? If you don't know the Israelite story, here pretty soon in a couple chapters, they're going to be making some gods of gold, right? Making some, uh, some idols of gold in the shape of a big fat calf, of course. So it's, I mean, unbelievable. But that's how we are. That's what we do. Even though we know it's crazy, even though we know it's false, we still go after it. What are you becoming? So from verse 23, we're going to move on to verse 24. And God gives some very specific uh, instructions beginning with altars. He says this in verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. So we're going to stop right here and talk about altars for a second. Now when you picture altars, I don't know what you think about in your mind, but, but God says right here, an altar of earth, literally an altar of dirt, you shall make for me. Leave all the, the gods of gold and silver back there, right? Le- leave the shiny stuff behind. I'll take a little bit of dirt, build it up. That's good for me. Now, this isn't the first time that an altar has shown up in the Bible. By my count, this is actually the sixth time in the Bible this word has been used. Now, in Genesis, in Genesis 8, when the flood subsides and the waters go down uh, in the flood, Noah, after they get off the boat... He gets out and uh, he offers the Lord uh, a burnt offering. He makes a burnt offering sacrifice and offers it to the Lord. Well, here's what a burnt offering is. A burnt offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system happens when you would take a sacrifice, take an animal, sacrifice it, offer it on your altar, and you would light it on fire. Okay, so things just got crazier all of a sudden. The reason why it's called a burnt offering is because the fire is meant to consume it completely. With every other offering, something is left aside. Something is left over. You're supposed to give it to a priest or, or eat it yourself or something like that. But here in a burnt offering, everything is consumed. And the occasion for a burnt offering, this is the most widely used offering in the entire Old Testament. Burnt offerings are used to express thankfulness uh, to God, to express praise to God, prayers, uh, to draw near to him and say something to the effect of God is great. So we saw that happening in, with Noah in Genesis 8. Genesis 12 and 13, Abraham comes on the scene and uh, God makes his covenant with Abraham and as he makes his promises to Abraham in the land of Canaan, all throughout the land, Abraham begins setting up these altars all over the place. And essentially, I think what he's doing is he's claiming it for the Lord and he's saying right here, God has made a promise in this way to me. He has been faithful. God is great. So he's setting up these altars uh, all over the place. And then this comes up in uh, Genesis 22, if you can put this up. Uh, in Genesis 22, a fairly famous story, but I don't know if you've seen the, this piece of it. From verses nine through 14, it says, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. How many of you guys say, here I am, if somebody just calls your name? Here I am. Verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Can you begin to try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes in that moment? You go from thinking that your son is going to be the burnt offering 
to then, after this ram is provided, the angel stops you. Can you imagine how grateful he was in his heart when he was offering up that burnt offering? When he was lifting that up and saying, God is great, God is great, God is great, God provided, God has come through, God has been faithful to his covenant, God has blessed us, God is great. So that's the burnt offering. And then back here in 24, the second offering that God says that they're going uh, to offer up on these altars of dirt is a peace offering. Now a peace offering, or another translation in some of your Bibles might say fellowship offering, this is essentially a meal that originally was shared between two different kings in the ancient Near East where one king would take over another. Then uh, he would make a covenant with his land and he would give them their law. He would give them the blueprint of what it would look like to live in their kingdom and then to signify that this is all good, the kings would have a lunch together. Or not, well, it could be dinner, I guess, but a meal in general. There you go. They would have a meal in general to sit down and have fellowship and celebrate the fact that they've been united. This is, by the way, I th- what I think Jesus did in the New Testament, embodying this, this, this peace offering. Whereas in the Old Testament, people would offer a peace offering by offering up an offering to the Lord some kind of an animal that would be offered on this altar to signify and to celebrate the fact that God has welcomed them into this covenant, that God has let them be in fellowship with him. I think that that's what Jesus was doing in, in, in the Lord's Supper. So you have, this, you have this thing. God is saying, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And then he says in verse 24, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. I would reword the, the verse in this way in my own translation. Um, make an altar, some dirt will do. It's all good. Put some work into it. And I'm going to do a whole lot of things that are going to cause you to want to say God is great. So then you can do the sacrifice to do that. Oh, and I'm also going to do a lot of things that are going to remind you that I've been gracious to you and faithful. You're going to want to celebrate the fact that we've been brought into fellowship together and that I accept you and receive you. Here's another offering to do that. And by the way, there's going to be many occurrences everywhere in which I make my name remembered. You're going to want to do this a lot, by the way. Now, the crazy thing about an altar is that it's, it has a twofold purpose. Number one, for the offerer to offer up their sacrifice, to do their devoted thing to the Lord. And number two, they would leave that altar up. Nobody ever tore down their own altar. You leave that altar up so that as you move on and other people come across the path and they see the altar that you built, they would actually come to recognize that this altar uh, was, was made uh, in honor of the one true God, the God that you serve, the God that you offered these sacrifices up to. That altar would signify that the God of heaven and earth had done something amazing here. So we have this wonderful situation where God is saying, okay, Ten Commandments, done, good. Don't make gods of gold, don't make gods of silver. Make altars, and this is what I want you to do on them. And it's going to happen a lot. And then he says in verse 25, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. Uh, so looking at this for a second, a hewn stone is a stone that's shaped of some sort. It's cut down. The word hewn uh, in Hebrew is the same word that's used elsewhere when they talk about shearing sheep. So somehow the tool would be a chisel or a sword, uh, pretty awesome, by the way, if you randomly just have a sword on you to take and cut a rock down with. I don't know how many of you guys carry swords with you, like to chop rocks up whenever you see them, but apparently that could happen back in this day. But he says this, he, he says this, that if you make an altar of stone, if you find a big rock, don't do anything to it. 
there's no need to do anything else to it. You're not going to add to your credit. You're not going to make your prayers heard more if you dress your stone up and cut it down into something that you think is awesome. So if you wield your tool on it, you'll profane it. You'll take away its reverence. You'll render it unfit. You'll desecrate it. So what it says right away, I think so far, looking back in these couple verses, is that the Lord seems to not be impressed by pretty things. I think there's a whole different definition we've got to figure out about what beauty is in the eyes of the Lord. If he's willing to accept dirt and rocks and say that, that's my altar. It's pretty amazing that we serve a God that can't be appeased. We can't manipulate him simply by chiseling it into something better. We can't manipulate him by dressing it up into something it's not. The Lord says, I see everything for what it is. I love my creation. I love you. All I'm asking is that you be yourself. Bring yourself forward. You can't add to this. Come with me. So this brings me to a question to throw out there. And I've had some conversations with some law family leaders recently about this. It's so hard to delight in, in the things that seem ordinary. In the things that seem ordinary. I mean, in this case, the Lord is calling them to do stuff with dirt and rocks. And somehow that's a pretty holy thing. I mean, in an age that we live in where there's so much technology, and it would, which is awesome in its own right in so many ways, so many opportunities to do things, so much information, so, so much of everything, we've lost the art of delighting in the simple things that the Lord provides for us. And so how are you doing delighting in the seemingly average things that the Lord has thrown your way, that he's provided for you? Don't miss the beautiful, absolutely wonderful, simple-looking things that the Lord has thrown your way. But we're going to do the last verse here, going into verse 26. This is the uh, pinnacle verse here. This is, this is what all the slides were made for. And you, verse 26, shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the verse I was waiting to preach, like, you know, for, for months and months and months. I can't wait to get to the naked piece. This is going to be awesome. Um, actually not. I, I looked at this a couple weeks ago, and I was, I, was kind of, I was kind of struck. Okay, so we got nakedness going on. What, what does that mean? What, what, what's happening here? Um, okay. This is kind of a, a lot deductive reasoning, but I did a good job of this in the first service by not saying things that I would naturally be tempted to say. Uh, insert joke here. But you have uh, God essentially saying, um, I almost picture him saying, like, don't make the altar too tall because you can't put steps on it. If you put steps on it and you walk up those steps, your nakedness will be exposed, Okay. So do the math real quick. Picture yourself in this time frame, in the ancient Near East, you're an Israelite. Uh, this is pre-fruit like fruit of the loom and Hanes and all that stuff. No Michael Jordan commercials. Everything still had tags on it. Um, so you have, you have this situation where the priest or whoever's offering this stuff on the altar is going to walk up the altar and bring that up. The Lord says, I'm just going to help you out here by saying don't build steps because you're going to see some stuff you do not want to see, Okay. So what is this saying right away? Okay, this, this is, I think this is the Lord combating something that they would be tempted to do. You see, when they get into the land of Canaan, uh, that God has promised to them, this land is, is very, 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 very idolatrous. And one of the ways in which they would worship their deities in Canaan uh, would be to have, I mean, and I've seen pictures of their altars. It's unbelievable. They'd have these huge altars, and they'd have these huge sexual rituals on the altars to appease their God. So in some way, you have this God who's saying, hey, I can't be appeased uh, by, by sinfulness and by lust and all these things that this is going to cause. This is going to harm you if you go that way. So 
God is essentially like cutting it off with root. He's like, just don't build steps. <laughs> don't build steps and you'll, that, that'll actually fix it. Um, God is looking out for his people. And when they get to the land and when they worship in this way, on these altars with no steps, and everybody's still got their skivvies on and all that stuff, everybody around them is going to look at them and is going to wonder, why are you worshiping in a different way? How come you don't have to do this and that for your God? It's unbelievable what the Lord is shaping uh, his people to be. So, okay, that's the passage. That's five verses. That's, you know, that, that's the text that we've been given. I spent a couple days going through this passage and trying uh, to figure out what can we learn or discern about worship, and specifically worshiping God, from this one particular passage. Now, this is, uh, this is 12 points. I'm not going to lie. I'm not gonna, we're not going to, like, go very slowly through all these. But this is a whittled-down list from many more points um, into something I think that's pretty manageable. So um, based on Exodus 20, verses 22 through 26, God's worship, number one, is a response to his faithfulness and character. We saw that back in verse 22. He already spoke of them from heaven. He already redeemed them from Egypt. He's given them this law, but he's shown himself to be who he is so far, well before he asked them to do anything. So it's a response to his faithfulness. Number two, from verse 23, it includes obedience to him. So he said uh, right away, as you worship me, don't do this. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to come into a place of worship and worship the Lord while maybe outside the walls of the church, you're completely disobedient in everything else, but it causes conflict. I know what it feels like. It doesn't work really well. When you try to go live whichever way you want to live apart from the Lord, and then you come into his presence, you can say the right lyrics, you can say the right words, you can raise your hands all you want to. The reality is, is this does not work without obedience to some form or fashion. And by the Holy Spirit's power, we're being drawn into greater obedience the more we grow up into Christ. So it includes obedience to him, point two. Number three, uh, from verses 22 and 24, it cannot be bound to a particular place. The Lord says, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, which means that there's no one place that's more special over all the other places. Every place they go through throughout this wilderness, they're going to see more pieces of his character. In every place along the way, they're going to, be, um, to, to desire to build these altars. From the very beginning of this church, we've been saying over and over and over again that the church has never been a building. Literally, the church, by definition, is a gathering. It's an assembly of people. It's, it's one thing to believe that when you're renting like we were for the first four places that we were at. It's a whole different thing altogether to hold your word up in that when we buy this place. And no matter how many times we finish off our amazing parking lots, uh, praise God for that, by the way, no potholes, it doesn't mean that, that, it doesn't mean that like, this place is preferred over anywhere else. I'll tell you this. For like three years, we've been working on a building in Santana in Ecuador that's not, uh, it's, it's small enough to fit inside this one room. And it's going to be the whole church for a village down there. The Lord is just as much present in that church building down there as he is up in this one here. He's not bound by any one particular place at all. Number four. God's worship is more demanding than worshiping false gods. We talked about that earlier. You can go the route of, of worshiping the false god, but you're doing it probably out of, out of a lack of, of, maybe you're afraid of what it would actually cost you to worship the true God. Worshiping this other God over here on the side is easy and less demanding. Uh, point number five, God's worship cannot be improved with prettier things. 
He can't be improved with gold or silver. He can't be improved. I mean, he's asking for dirt and rocks here, okay, for altars. He can't be improved. Uh, your worship cannot be improved upon with prettier things to dress it up. It's crazy how much we, we get into all this, and it's so easy to want to actually pull a fast one over on God based on what we wear coming in, based on how we act, how we treat ourselves, what we think is preferred in God's eyes, we can know for sure that God's worship cannot be improved with prettier things. And we still have to keep working on what we mean by pretty versus what God means uh, by pretty. Uh, Point number six, God's worship cannot be owned by man. I don't know if you picked up on this through the passage, but um, all of a sudden he started calling these things my altars. They were building the altars, but they were actually God's altars. This kind of goes with everything else in life. You may work as hard as you can, and you've been given talents and strengths and, and things to glorify the Lord in, wonderful things to serve him in. But at the end of the day, when we gather to worship, the fact that we, you know, that, that maybe some of us teach, or the fact that we have an amazing worship band, or the fact that we, all this stuff, everything involved, amazing prayers, amazing, all these things, does not mean that we have ownership over one speck of what happens in here. We can't contain it. It's not, it's not our box to fill things into. It's the Lord who calls the shots. It's the Lord who does what he wants. He owns all of this, every piece of this, and every piece of what we would deem would be fruit uh, from this. He owns every piece of it. And point number seven, God's worship is not based upon riches but cost. So he's not asking for valuable, expensive things. It's, it's not about what something's um, worth. It's about what it costs. This reminds me of Jesus and the, the widow in, Matthew, in Mark 12. When she goes up and she gives two, two, two coins that are the equivalent of a penny. And there's a lot of rich people around who are giving loads of money. And Jesus turns around and says, I tell you truly that this woman gave more than anybody else here. Because she gave out of her poverty and not out of her abundance. The worship of the Lord is always about cost. And there's no level that when you've just gotten there, then you can stop. Like, that's, that's the goal. No, the worship of the Lord increases the cost more and more and more as, as you worship. As you gain more, you give more. As, you, as, as, as more is taken away from you, you still give everything. The worship of the Lord is um, not based on riches but cost. Point number eight, God's worship is made possible because of the right sacrifice. You see this right here, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. They come into play. These people cannot approach the Lord without the right sacrifice. Sin has to be atoned for. There has to be a medium through which God's holiness uh, can be experienced. Now, this is foreshadowing, obviously, to hundreds of years later to what Jesus did on the cross. His choice, his free will choice, to offer himself up for the sacrifice of all mankind so that we could draw near and say that God is great, to say that he is with us is grace. It would be impossible to worship here tonight in spirit and truth without the sacrifice that it took on Jesus' part to make it so. We worship tonight because he gave his life so that we could say God is great. Point number nine, God's worship blesses his people. We can miss this point, I think, so easily because there's so many other outlets by which we can do some of these things. I can listen to so many of the songs that we play up here on my iPhone I can pray as much as I want to in my own closet. I can, I can download amazing sermons online all over the place. But the reality is, is there's a blessing that comes with being a part of the corporate people of God. There's accountability, there's encouragement, and there's more that we're gonna see here in a little bit as far as 
what it means to spur one another on and remind each other of what the Lord has done. You don't get that sitting in your mom's basement listening to Driscoll sermons every night, okay? As good as, as, good as that is, there's no replacement for the people of God gathering together. Number 10, God's worship cannot be overshadowed by the skills of man. Now, it's, it's easy to try to play down what we are good at to say that, oh man, God is good. It's a whole other thing altogether when you have really talented people like we do in this church all over the place. To look at that and say, man, that's amazing, but God is greater. Those things by themselves are a means to the end of giving uh, God all the glory. They can't be overshadowed by the skills of men. At the end of the day, if every single one of us who serves in any upfront way in this church were out of here, if the Lord wanted this to keep going, it would happen. He does not need any one of us to do this. He graces us with the talents that we have, and he works through our weaknesses, more importantly, to bring his name glory. So we cannot be overshadowed by the skills of man. Number 11, God's worship unites his people against sin and evil. Specifically, nakedness, okay? I'll just say that. The worship of God together should unite us against public nudity. I'll just kind of throw that out there, okay, just to connect with the passage a little bit. In that, in that piece of the, uh, of the passage, in verse 26, God is looking out for his people. He's saying, hey, as you gather, gather for the sake of righteousness. Gather for the sake of honoring my name. Gather for the sake of spurring one another on toward the cross. Draw people to me. Don't distract one another with your sin. God's uh, worship unites his people against sin and evil. We just got done talking about this, by the way, on Sunday in Lot Family. How being in the, in the sanctuary of the Lord changed David's perspective on what sin was, on what was reality outside. You cannot get that perspective as full as you can by being a part of the people of God, by worshiping as the corporate people of God. And the last point, number 12, says this. God's worship sets his people apart from other worshipers. What are you worshiping? The worship of God makes his people look different. The worship of God produces different fruit than it does in the lives of people who worship other things. And that's not a solo process, by the way. This is together, this is arm in arm locked, saying, uh, brother, sister, I know that the Lord wants more for you. I know that the Lord desires more for your life. Fruit, sanctification, glory of his name. He sets his people apart from other worshipers. All right, so after all that, I think it... It's important to go back and look at this issue of altars. Um, not, not just altars of dirt or altars of rock, but, but these things, these altars, these, these, these things that provide uh, us with an opportunity to, de- to, to dedicate uh, ourselves to the Lord because of what he's done. And at the same time, things that other people will look back on and say, man, God did something in that time, that place. God did something there with that person. I think that we all have altars in our lives that we have an opportunity to experience together and share in together. And there's three different kinds that I've thought of so far. Um, number one is this. There are uh, places that you may have as altars, places where the Lord did amazing things in your life, places where you made decisions that you never turned back from, places where he revealed sin that you never even saw and was convicted of before, places where the Lord moved mightily in your midst. Maybe it's a camp, maybe it's somebody's house, maybe... Maybe it's a place where you had a specific conversation. Um, there are places that the Lord has put in our midst. He's, 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 he's allowed them to be a part of our story so that we would look back on those places 
and not say that, yeah, that was great and I wish we could be back there, but to say, man, God did something there. Keep working. What are your places? What places has the Lord used and orchestrated to work, to change you, to grow you? Second thing that uh, we have as altars, I think, are objects. It's so appropriate to talk about journaling right here. Now, I'm not going to legalistically say that everybody has to get their pen and paper and write like every day, five times a day and all that. But I think we all have to find ways to chronicle and to remember what God has done in our life. To look back and say, man, he was faithful to me then. Or to look back and say, I didn't understand what was happening then. But in hindsight, I know that God was working. We have to find ways to, to, to somehow remind ourselves to keep track of what he's been doing. So objects that can serve as altars, that, that, that we know that, that God did something there, and at the same time, looking back on that, us and other people would be able to say, man, God did something in your life. Lastly, I think, uh, I think people can serve as altars for us. Um, you see right away that, that the altar is not the object of worship. But the altar is the means of which you can bring God glory. So people in your life... Think of friends. What would our conversations be like if when we got together, we were spurring one another on and, and almost like fighting to get rid of the, the easy conversations just to go right to, hey man, you didn't ask me to tell you this, but I'm gonna tell you this. I remember what God did in your heart two years ago. Or I remember what happened. I remember that conversation we had. I remember the change when I saw it happening. What would it look like to spur one another on with those kinds of conversations, to be friends in that way to one another, to be brothers and sisters who spur one another on to glorify the Lord in that way. So when I was at Covenant, when I was in seminary for the last three years, I was there for four years, and for the last three years I was a part of a group, uh, five of us uh, students and a professor kind of self-formed and decided to get together. We said, hey, we have to find a way to process what's happening here as we learn, as we grow, but we also need to be known. We need to be seen together in this and, and have uh, brothers that we can journey in this together. We decided to get together every week. We got together every week for three years. And now all of us are in different parts of the world, literally, doing ministry in different contexts. In this group, basically what we would do, it all began with us taking turns every time telling our story. And in that, as we would go back around and circle back around, we would go into different facets and get to, get, get to know one another and hear how the Lord had worked and and, and exposed our struggles and celebrated in our joys. And I'll tell you this, that in a year's time with that group, I came to know those guys better and more intimately than most other people in my life who've known me for 30 years. Now, somewhere along the line in that, in those three years, toward the end of it, in another round of, you know, many tears being shed and all this stuff and, you know, me telling my story and, you know, all that stuff, one of the guys after me talking about, again, what the Lord had done in my life and anticipating, I think, our second son and thinking about what, what Sarah and I had done together and just how much we, we have grown in this process together, he looked at me and he said, do you understand that your wife is the most clear picture of redemption that you've ever had in your life? Now, as somebody who I love my wife, I don't always think of it like that. In that moment, it took... It took the camaraderie of, of, of five other brothers looking at me and saying, hey, do you see this? And it wasn't like, it wasn't this opportunity where they're saying, yeah, you have a great wife, worship your wife, that's awesome. No, it was, it was a praise God moment where we had an opportunity to say, man, the Lord provided. God is great, and he's been with us the whole time. That's friendship. That's true friendship. 
unbelievable friendship where you're spurring one another on um, to the cross, glorifying the Lord. But what about spouses? Husbands and wives in this room. Instead of doing the natural thing, instead of keeping score against all that they've done against you, instead of, instead of waking up thinking about how you're going to outdo them and doing good things so that you look better than them. And I mean, if you don't understand that when you're married, this happens, I think. At least I hope it happens to somebody else and not just me. But what would our marriages look like if husbands and wives were able to look each other in the eye and say, I remember what he did. I remember where we were in that place and how he moved in our midst. I remember, I remember how he changed your life in so many ways. I've, I've seen you grow along the way. What if they pointed us back to these altars themselves? I have to imagine that in Abraham and, and Sarah's story, that well down the line, after the fact, Sarah would look back at Abraham and say, do you remember what happened in Mount Moriah? I remember what happened. I remember you took Isaac. I hated that you took him up there. I despised you in the moment for doing it. But you know what? You were faithful. You were faithful to the king. How would all of our relationships change if we saw that we have this opportunity to be altars of remembrance for each other, to remember what God has done, who he's been, how he's worked, how he's provided, how he's guided us. But I think there's still a different category of people in here. I know that some of you in here tonight, believer and non-believer, I'm not assuming any one particular line on this, I know some of you are struggling to even come up with one story or one shred of evidence that the Lord has done anything for you, that he's been on your side. I know that for some of you, the, the view is so foggy and bleak. And I don't have any short answers to, I mean, I'm not, I can't tell you, just be happy. It's not about being happy. This, this worship thing is never about being happy. It's about recognizing what's true and that there's a God of heaven and earth who's greater than everything else. For you, I have this verse in Psalm 27. At the end of David, praying for God to deliver him from his enemies, which he never, ever, ever gets to any other answer in that psalm except for saying this, the very last verse. He says this, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's his answer in this moment. That's his answer when he still believes that God is going to work in his midst. He still believes that somehow, someway, God is going to vindicate him in this life or the next. Somehow he's going to provide a way for him to be able to fight against his sin and fight against the ways that he's being sinned against and stand up, fist held high, and say God is greater than all of this. We have an opportunity tonight to worship. And it's, it's, it's not conjuring up something new. It's not, it's not creating a new truth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He remains the same. He's unchanged. So our reason to worship is unchanged. So tonight, may we be changed ourselves as we stand, as we lift up our praises, as we come back against the ways of the world, against our sin, in the midst of everything, and we say that, God, you're great. You are great, and you're with us. Why don't you guys stand? Pray with me. Father, we, we lift up this time to you right now. I, I don't know where everybody is uh, at in their hearts in this room, but I pray right now for, um, I pray that the picture of you would be clearer now more than, more than when we walked in, that we wouldn't, be, um, that we wouldn't feel the need to, 
to make up emotion, but, but that we would simply see you for who you are, that you haven't left us, you haven't forsaken us, you've been with us, you've guided us, you will be there for us. Father, help us to stay with you, to still, with the praises of our lips, no matter how high or how low right now, to be able to say that you are greater than everything else in this world. Father, that you have graciously accepted us, that you love us. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace.